Well, our sermon text this morning, as I've already mentioned, is Psalm 36. And I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Psalm 36. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, that you give us a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, that we might not have to grope around to figure out who you are, or how we might be saved, how we might be made right with you, or how you would have us as your people to live and what we are to believe. We thank you for giving us your sure word, and we ask this morning that you would give us grace by your spirit, work in us, open our eyes, and our ears. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What if I told you today that, that you are all, every one of you, theologians? Maybe you've never called yourself that before. Maybe if, I, if someone were to ask you, this would never happen, right? Someone's having casual conversation probably not going to look at you and say, are you a theologian? But if they were to do that, if they were to ask you that question, the correct answer is yes. You, every one of you, is a theologian. Theology is not just your pastor's job. Theology is not just the elder's job. Theology is not just seminary professor's jobs. If you're a Christian, then you of all people are to be and are, whether you want to be or not, a theologian. What is theology? If you're a theologian, it helps to know what that is. What's theology? Basically, strictly speaking, theology is just, just the study of God. The study of God. And knowing God, if you know John 17, 3, knowing God is what eternal life is essentially all about. That's, in some sense, it's a definition of eternal life. It's a definition of what it means to be a Christian. There's a lot of, a lot of phrases and words we can, we can use. Uh, Rob mentioned, you know, born again, saved. Knowing God, someone who knows God, rightly knows God. That's what a Christian is and is to be. Well, you might know some of you, my, my favorite book outside of the Bible is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Uh, it won't be the last time, certainly isn't the first time you've heard me 
mention it or quote from it. Well, in the first chapter of that book, in the opening pages of that chapter, he quotes Charles Spurgeon, a sermon that Spurgeon uh, gave back in 1855. And he, in that sermon, made this following observation about the study of God. It's a little bit lengthy quote, but I think you'll see why, why I bring it up. And this is what Spurgeon wrote and preached at that time. He said, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity of, of God. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, and he is, uh, but he is like a wild ass's colt, and with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. He continues, but while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And he says, and while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to, to that I invite you this morning. Words that were spoken 1855, quite a, even before Rob was born. Uh, and, uh, and yet he could have written them yesterday if he were still with us. You know, and it's to that same, to use his word, musing, not amusing, uh, or study of God that David here invites us to also in Psalm 36. That, that could easily be a commentary on Psalm 36. I don't believe it was, but it could have been. And it's in a lot of ways, it's those very same three things that Spurgeon mentioned there uh, for which David commends us to study God in Psalm 36. First, to humble our minds especially in the first four verses of, of Psalm 36, especially the mind of the sinner who's still in his sins and not yet, not yet in Christ, the one who has, as verses 1 and 2 tells us, no fear of God before his eyes 
to the degree that he flatters himself that God will neither see or hate his sin. The study of God will humble that mind and our minds. Two, it will expand our minds as we meditate upon all of the great perfections and attributes of God, especially, as according to this psalm puts it, his steadfast love to us. And third, it will give us great comfort and consolation in the midst of our troubles, especially those kinds of troubles where the godly are vexed and troubled by the wicked in this life. And David, in doing those things, he points us to three things here in our psalm. First, he points us to the depravity of the wicked in verses 1 through 4. The depravity of the wicked. Secondly, the steadfast love of the Lord. Really, all the perfections or many of the perfections of God in verses 5 through 9. And the third thing we see in our text is the prayer of the upright in verses 10 through 12. So the first thing David mentions or points us out, uh, points our attention to is the depravity of the wicked in verses 1 through 4. He says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. That his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself, sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Now that first verse there, the phrase where it says transgression speaks to the heart, the wicked deep in his heart. Sometimes in in Hebrew poetry, in the Psalms in particular, uh, they can be a little awkward and difficult to translate. That's why you'll see some differences in in your translations. Um, The word for speaks there often conveys the idea, the sense of a prophetic oracle from the Lord. That's the way it's often used in our Old Testaments. And for that reason, the New King James and probably others renders it as this an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. An oracle uh, concerning the transgression of the wicked. Taken that way, it's kind of a a title of the psalm and not really the first verse in in some ways, or at least the title of the first four verses of the psalm, if nothing else. Well, either way, whatever way you understand that to be be taken, the opening four verses of this psalm uh, are most certainly to be understood as an oracle of the Lord about the depravity of, of the wicked, about the depravity of mankind. That, that is how the Apostle Paul, no less, understood that. This passage, he quotes verse 1. You might know in the New Testament, he quotes verse 1 in Romans chapter 3. If I were to ask you, you know, pick a chapter in the Bible that deals with mankind's depravity in sin outside of Christ, the one that jumps to mind, the section that jumps to my mind is Romans 1 through 3. But especially Romans chapter Three In that memorable chapter, there's a passage there you might be aware of where Paul, what he does is by a string of quotations strung together from the Psalms, from Proverbs, and from Isaiah, he demonstrates and proves from Scripture the total depravity of all of mankind outside of Christ. In fact, he quotes verse 1 of Psalm 36 at the very end of that section. It's kind of the thing he uses to cap it off and sum up the whole state of mankind in sin by saying there is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3.18 Notice he changes the wording a little tiny bit, doesn't he? What does the psalmist say? The psalmist uses a singular. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Paul says that applies to everybody. And so he says there's no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now, what does David say in our psalm here this morning about the result of having no fear of God? You know, there's consequences to not having the fear of God before your eyes. In verse 2, he says, for he what? He flatters himself, and notice the phrase there, in his own eyes. No fear of God before his eyes. So what is the result of that? He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. You know, a low view or, a no, or no view of God will inevitably lead to an inflated view of yourself. If you have a low view of God or no view of God, you're going to think very highly of yourself. That's how it works. Jonathan Edwards once wrote of this verse, he says, He who makes little of God makes much of himself. That's us. That's how we tend to think. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, puts it this way, Sinners are self-destroyers by being self-flatterers. Sinners are self-destroyers by being self-flatterers. And what is this sinful self-flattery? What's the content of it? What, what is the substance of this self-flattery? It's that his iniquity, verse 2, cannot be found out and hated. Found out and hated by whom? By the Lord. There's no fear of God before his eyes. What, it's, it's, it's this kind of language. God won't know. God won't see. Surely my sin is hidden from his sight if he even exists. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing. And certainly if he does see it, he won't hate it. He won't judge me or condemn me for it. But God, according to the scripture, sees everything. Everything is an open book before God, the God before whom we have to do. And the judge of the earth will do right, as the book of Genesis tells us. God sees all and his justice is perfect. His justice and judgments are perfect. So suppress the truth of God or deny him long enough and it won't be long before you find yourself plunging headlong into the kinds of iniquity and wickedness that you once never imagined in your wildest dreams that you'd be capable of. The, the old writer Dostoevsky put it in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov. He said, without God, all things are permissible. You know, the Bible says, with God, all things are what? Possible. He says, without God, one of his characters in the book said, without God, all things are permissible. In other words, all bets are off. If God isn't there, you have no real, lasting, solid basis for any ethical standards. It's this. What can I get away with? What will people tolerate? And that's always shifting, isn't it? Without God, all things are permissible. Is our society today not proving this very thing in recent days, months, and years. Sins that were once only whispered about in dark corners are now trumpeted from the rooftops, paraded in our streets, taught in many of our schools, and even normalized by local, state, and federal, federal government. Who would have dreamed even 10 or 20 years ago, five years ago, that so many people in our great land would have, even have a difficult time figuring out which bathroom they're supposed to use? It's hard to really imagine that that's the case. Notice his words in verse 3. It says, his words are deceitful. His actions are neither wise nor good. He has ceased to act wisely or do good. Not only that, but he plots trouble while on his bed, so that even his thoughts are consumed by evil. 
His sin and iniquity of, of the wicked here is willful. It's intentional. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. He's dreaming up ways to sin while on his bed. And probably the scariest part of this whole passage is in verse 4. After all is said and done, it says he sets himself in a way that is not good. Sets himself. It's like he's planted. He's taken root in the ways that, is, that are not good. It's another way of saying that is Hebrews 3.13 calls that being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has a hardening effect. The more you sin, the easier it gets to sin. The more you tell yourself that God neither sees nor hates your sins, the easier it is to start believing that, that flattery, that self-flattery. That's, that is a frightening picture of depravity and wickedness. And what does Paul say in Romans 3.18 about everyone outside of Christ? Not a flattering picture at all, is it? That's, that's every single one of us outside of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, set in ways that are not good. Well, thankfully, after the pitch black of those first four verses comes the sunrise of verses 5 through 9. The second thing that David turns our attention to here, thankfully, in this psalm is the steadfast love of the Lord, the perfections of God in all that he is and all that he does for our salvation. He mentions the steadfast love of the Lord three times in this psalm. It must be awfully important. In many ways, the steadfast love of the Lord is the, is the main focus of this entire psalm. Here in verses 5 through 9, David, I don't know if you picked up on this when we were first reading it, David does something that you might find unexpected. You know, when you think of the Bible making a contrast between the depravity of the wicked and something else, usually that something else, or very often that something else, is the righteous. Psalm 1 is a good example of that. You know, you have, blessed is the man who, you know, doesn't, uh, walk in the counsel of sinners, stand in the seat of scoffers, or sit in the seat of scoffers, or stand uh, in the way of the wicked, that kind of a thing. Uh, but, but he's blessed because he what? He delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. He bears fruit at all times. His, his leaf doesn't ever wither. Not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. The wicked will not stand in the day of, of judgment, the psalm says. Well, that's not the comparison or contrast Psalm 36 makes, is it? He doesn't go from verses 1 to 4, the wicked, and then go, the righteous. Well, he does, but not the way you think. The real contrast is between the wicked, in verses 1 through 4, and God himself. Not, not just the godly, but God himself. And so what he does here is he reminds us of the many perfections of God. In verses 5 through 9, he writes again, he writes, Your steadfast love, O Lord extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness lies like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save or you preserve. O Lord, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So in contrast with the wicked, what does David want us to think about? And praise God for the steadfast love of the Lord that extends to the heavens. The depravity of the wicked is, is very deep, but God's steadfast love extends to the heavens. His faithfulness to us 
to the clouds. The righteousness of the Lord is like the mountains of God. They, they can't be moved. The wicked, as wicked as they may be, as much as they might, might harass and persecute and vex God's people, his, his righteousness cannot be moved. His judgments are like the great deep. We can't plumb their depths. We can't understand them, but we can know that God knows what he's doing. David would have us remind ourselves of the greatness of our God and Savior, and he would have us do that by praising God. This is a song, remember, to the choir master for his many perfections. Never think of praise as being impractical or a waste of time or a warm-up for the sermon or a warm, you know, whatever the part is of the service that you think is important. Our praising, using scripture uh, as it should be in praise, is a very important part of our worship. Now, in contrast to the depths of depravity that David mentions in verses 1 through 4, he reminds us of God's steadfast love. What is that? It's so important he mentions it three times. Uh, it's, it's the word in Hebrew for God's covenant love, which is very fitting concerning the fact that we're going to have the Lord's Supper here in a little while. His covenant love, his unbreakable covenant love to us in Jesus Christ. How great is that steadfast love, that unbreakable covenant love that God has sworn with an oath to his people in Christ? It extends to the heavens. It reaches to the heavens. In other words, it's higher than we can even imagine. How greatly does God love you in Jesus Christ if you're a believer this morning? You, you can't even fathom it. You can't even uh, imagine. It's beyond our capability of understanding. His faithfulness to us, no matter how bad the wicked may harass God's people, God's faithfulness to you is as high as the clouds. It's no wonder that verse 7, that when he repeats the, the phrase again, he says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. How precious it was to David, how precious it should be to us. How do we know how great that steadfast love to you and me in Christ is? Where do you look? Look at the cross of Christ. Look at this table that it represents, the body and blood of Christ signed and sealed by the bread and by, by the cup. There can be no greater love for you or for me than that Christ would lay down his life for sinners. Look at what David says in verse 8 there about serving the Lord. He says, he speaks about feasting and drinking our fill from his river of delights. How often do we think like that? Do we think like that naturally? I don't. I, you know, maybe you don't either. Is there any truth of scripture that Satan attacks more than that? I'm not sure that there is. Ever since the Garden of Eden, he has always made it one of his chief aims and strategies to convince men and women that sin is good. That sin will bring delight instead of death. And then on the other side of the coin, there's drudgery and not delight in serving the Lord. He is forever deceiving poor souls into believing that the Lord is holding back good things. God's holding out on you. His commandments are a burden strapped to your back. They're not there for your good. They're not there to give you an abundant life. He wants us to believe, Satan does, that if you serve the Lord, that you're going to miss out on something that you need or that you should have. Something pleasant, something delightful. What does David say here? He describes not just delights. It would be one thing if David said, there's delights with the Lord. There's, he says there's a river, a river of delights in knowing and serving the Lord. Not just a trickle, not just a little piddly puddle, uh, not just a half a glass full, 
a river, a raging torrent of good things, of delights that cannot be exhausted or run out. We can drink our fill. You can drink as much as you want. It'll never run out. There's no end to the delights there are in knowing and serving God. It reminds me of Psalm 1611. It says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is pleasure, there is delight in serving and knowing the one true and living God. Our Heavenly Father is no miser to his adopted children in Jesus Christ. He's not holding back anything from us. If he's given us his son, what does Romans say? How will he not with him give us what? All things. He's, he hasn't withheld the greatest thing from us. And yet Satan always is telling us he's holding out on you. Doing things God's way, obeying his word is a burden. He's holding out. It's drudgery. Nothing could be further from the truth. And the last thing that we see in our text here this morning is the prayer of the upright. Verses 10 through 12. It's a prayer for the continuation of that same steadfast love that David praised twice already in the psalm. It's a prayer for the, the continuation of God's steadfast love, the protection of his people from the wicked and evildoers. And I, I think here, if maybe you've had some trouble figuring out how does this psalm go together, I think here we're starting to see why the steadfast love of the Lord was so precious to David and why he would have us to join with him in studying and meditating upon it and singing even about it today. So verses 10 through 12, as odd as they might sound to you in some parts, uh, I think these verses show us how the whole, whole psalm fits together. This is, the one, this is the part of the psalm that ties the whole thing together. Here we see the purpose for that great contrast that David paints in the first four verses and the verses that follow it, the perfections of the Lord in verses 5 through 9. You know, there's some, some Old Testament quote-unquote scholars who seem to feel competent to sit in judgment upon the pure word of God, they, they claim that there's such an abrupt and drastic change between verses 1 and 4, 1 through 4, and what follows, uh, that somehow, you know, these verses, they, mu- they must not really belong together. They say they must not really be a unified whole, but they must be, you know, parts or, or two separate unrelated psalms that somehow some sloppy editor, you know, slapped them together and, no, oops, you know, here we have Psalm 36. Because um, is, there is a very drastic change from verses 1 through 4 to the rest of it, isn't it? It's almost like, you know, it seems like a non sequitur. Why, why did you bring up the depravity of the wicked and all of a sudden, your love, O Lord, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends uh, to the heaven. Is this, is this an oops? Is this a mistake in, in your Bibles? No. Nothing could be farther from the truth. First of all, does that drastic change of subject matter between verses 1 through 4 and what follows, doesn't it actually follow, you know, serve to heighten the contrast David's making in the first place? It should be a drastic change. There's no gradual way, there's no smooth transition you can make from the one to the other. Nighttime may ease slowly into the morning, although lately it doesn't seem like it's doing that. Uh, but the difference between the wicked and the Lord is much more like going from the darkness of midnight to going to the blazing sun of high noon. Going from verses 1 through 4 to what follows is kind of like being in a pitch black room where you can't see your hand in front of your face when somebody flicks the light on in front of you. It's, it's too much light. You, you, you have, your eyes have to adjust. You can't even see. That's the change from verses 1 through 4 to verses 5 through 9. 
You know, and it might be easy for us, I think, I think it was easy for me at first, to miss the connection and the overall point being made in this psalm. But verses 10 through 12, I think, serve to make it clear. David, when he speaks of the wicked in those first four verses, you know, he's not speaking of the wicked in some abstract way. He's not speaking as if these evil people were safely removed from us to consider from afar, to look at under glass for our inspection. What he has in mind is direct dealings with the wicked that the Lord's people, the Lord's redeemed and adopted people, are confronted with on a regular basis in this life. David's prayer in verses 10 through 12, what does he say? He asks the Lord to continue his steadfast love toward his people. Well, what's one of the primary ways David has in mind of God continuing it? If it's not, let let not the foot of the arrogant come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away, verse 11. That's what he has in mind when he says, let not your steadfast love, you know, let it continue. Let not these things happen. Notice that the wicked there in verse 11 that David has in mind, they have hands and feet. They're not ghosts. They're not apparitions. They're not incapable of doing real damage. They're not imaginary boogeymen. They're not hypothetical abstractions that you'll never have to deal with. They commit real wickedness. They do real damage. They pose a real threat in this life to God's people. And so David prays. And notice what David prays for. He prays for what the Lord has already promised, doesn't he? That his steadfast love would continue. We might look at that and say, isn't that kind of contradictory? Why would you pray for something God's promised? Well, the best way to pray is to pray according to God's promises. What you know he'll answer. It pleases God when we pray his word back to him, especially his promises in Christ, and he prays for deliverance from the wicked. You know, we, we prayed the Lord's Prayer this morning. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's part of the Lord's Prayer where we pray something very similar. Deliver us, Matthew 6.13, deliver us from what? From evil. In fact, some ways of translating that, which I'm kind of convinced is, is uh, what, it's, what it's intended to mean, you could translate that, deliver us from the evil one. It's a substantive, not some abstract adjective. Deliver us from the evil one. This psalm ends on a note of confidence and faith, trusting in God's goodness and justice and casting down the wicked. David sees their end that hasn't yet come in his lifetime, but he sees it by faith. He trusts God to answer him and to deliver him from the wicked. So I ask this morning as we close, are you discouraged this morning because of the rising tide of wickedness swirling around us on every side? Are you tempted to despair to throw your hands up in the air and say, what, what, can the right, what can we possibly do? Then I would say, do what David directs us to do here in this psalm. Turn your eyes from the depravity of the wicked to the perfections of God. Turn your eyes upon the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness to you, which is as high as the heavens and as high as the clouds in Jesus Christ. Make your great triune God and Savior the subject of your study, of your meditations, of your praise, and of your prayer. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning. We are very much, I think at times, even now, tempted to despair. Tempted to throw our hands up in the air and say, what can we possibly do? Nothing can be done. As if, as if the, worst, uh, the worst actions, thoughts, and words of the wicked could in any way possibly threaten your kingdom or threaten to undo anything that you have 
hath ordained to do from before the foundations of the earth. That it in any way can touch our salvation, we know it cannot. We know that nothing can stay your hand. Nothing can, can overthrow or overturn your purposes and that you will build your kingdom. You will build your church and the gates of hell are helpless against you doing that. The gates of hell shall never prevail against your church even though they'll certainly try and sometimes it looks like they're having the upper hand. We thank you that if we, if we spend our time, our thoughts, our praises, our prayers uh, on, on your perfections, on your steadfast love to us in Jesus Christ, we will not be moved because we're in Christ. That because of your Son, because of your great love for us in Him, nothing in all of life can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you and praise you for that. And we pray this morning that if anyone, if anyone is here among us that does not yet know you, that is still in the categories, the unflattering categories of, of the first four verses, that you might be pleased to seek and save that which is lost, that you might open the eyes of the blind and save, save them even now. We thank you that Jesus Christ came to die and rise again to justify the ungodly, that he came to, to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance, which is the only way that anyone's ever saved. Because none of us, none of us are even remotely righteous on our own. And we ask all this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.